move on. So I am, I'm really excited that all of y'all are here and uh, wanting to dig into this topic. And uh, we will be covering a number of different things tonight. It's, it's going to be, Pastor Billy said he's putting on the seatbelt, but we're all going to need a seatbelt because I'm going to try to go so fast through some of this. There's just so much to say. And um, so what we'll do tonight is I'll, I'll spend most of the time um, sharing some things. We'd love for it to be interactive uh, both tonight and especially tomorrow. So if you have questions and comments and stuff as we go, um, please, please uh, ask that and participate because I want this time to serve you and with the questions that you have. And in a context like this, I mean, everybody's going to come from way different backgrounds and it's, it's often hard to know exactly where is the best place to focus. So um, by you asking questions, that helps me ensure that I'm serving you with where you're at tonight. Um, don't, you know, don't hesitate to jump in. And um, so my session tonight is, is titled The Unfolding Work of the Holy Spirit, The Biblical Contours of Presence, Power, and Expectancy. So uh, what I want to begin by saying is, let's remember as we come to this subject of continuationism, which, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with that phrase, that just means that we believe that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as biblically defined, not as traditionally defined or popularly, de as biblically defined, continue um, into today and are available to the church today. So that's what we mean by continuationism. And when we talk about these things, um, we want to understand that these are not first order issues, which is to say they're not on par with justification by faith and the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And, and, but, but just because order doesn't mean it's not important. So we do want to dig in and talk about it and think about it together. Um, we say that in sovereign grace, um, and we're not the only group that would use this phrase, uh, that we are reformed continuationists. Now that is a merging of two categories that is like, never should be put together, right? So reformed people tend to be high on God's word and the sovereignty of God and expositional preaching and uh, the authority of scripture and the importance of objective truth and all of that. And, that. and that's very true. And continuationists, on the other hand, might be characterized by a reformed person as being experience-based and emotionally driven and living from one high to the next, and far, far too often subjective, and uh, not basing their lives upon the authority of Scripture, but basing their lives on probably repeated experiences, constantly chasing the supernatural and experiences and things like that. Um, but you know, when we think about the way the Bible gives us the activity of God in the life of His people, okay, it's not. It's not that characterization of continuationism that the Bible is calling us to. But there is an experience that is meant to be derived from the wonderful, rich, objective truth of God's word. That it's, it's, not, to, it's not that we are either word people or we're spirit people. We're not either doctrinally based or desirous of spiritual gifts, but Really, we believe the Bible teaches it's a both and, that 
the more rooted we are in Scripture, the more genuine and protected and guarded and healthy and life-changing our experience of the Spirit's work will be in our lives. It's when we're not tethered to Scripture that chasing after experiences becomes a thing that causes us to drift away from anything solid and stable. And so church history would, would have us maybe think that those two things should not go together. But we believe biblically that they, sh they belong together, <laughs> that, that they should. You know, so do we want to be word-based or do we want to be experience-based? I would say we want to have word-based experience. <laughs> so we want to experience what we see and encounter in God's word. We don't want it to stop with intellectual assent and acknowledgement that, of certain propositional truths. We're not laying propositional truth aside. We're building our life on it. That's critical. But it, we're saying propositional truth shouldn't stop there. That should translate into an experience. Now, on, on these two camps, we have up here behind me the word continuationism. Pastor Billy mentioned the word cessationism. Cessationism is just another uh, way to say the opposite, which is the belief that certain gifts um, – that we read about in the New Testament have ceased and are not available to the church today. Now, it's easy for everybody to, to throw uh, grenades at one another on both sides of the camp, but I want to encourage us to, whatever your background is and where you came from, whichever side of that debate you're most comfortable with, um, to try to find the, the good in the other side and embrace that, because neither side is just totally off the rails. I mean, okay, some people on, on TV that are in the hyper-charismatic world may be totally off the rails. But um, as, as a position, uh, it's always healthy to, when you're analyzing a position that you disagree with, to say, okay, what is, what is the good in this? And um, what, what, do we, what do we see here that I can say, I want to hold on to that. There's a lot of this I'm going to let go of. But what is there in this that is right and biblical? And let me embrace that and not throw the whole thing out. Okay, so that's just prefatory comments. Um, so I want to begin broadly, and then we're going to narrow down as we go tonight, um, talking about the presence of God, um, the work of the Spirit, uh, and then towards the end, baptism in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, filling with the Holy Spirit? And then tomorrow we'll get into specific gifts like the gift of prophecy and, uh, and the other gifts that are there. And then the last session tomorrow morning will be wholly devoted to Q&A. So I hope as we go, you know, if you, if you have a question and you're not quite sure how to ask it or when to ask it, write it down and um, maybe bring it up in the Q&A session at the end uh, tomorrow. But um, certainly we'd want you to, I would want you to uh, jump in as well. And I'll, I'll throw questions out there too as we go to get you participating. Okay. The presence of God. Just think about that for a moment. What are some things that we see in the Bible about the presence of God? What happens when people in the Bible are in God's presence? You know, there's a lot of different things that happen. There's, you, maybe you can throw some out. What are some things that happen when people encounter God's presence in the Bible? Yeah, okay fall on their face? And why would that be the case? What? 
what about that makes you fall on your face? Yeah, the presence of the holy, and, and that stands in such stark contrast to our sinfulness. So the, uh, an aspect of God's presence is having our eyes opened to the sheer purity and holiness of our Creator and having our eyes simultaneously open to how sinful we are in that we don't deserve to stand in His presence. And the result is falling on our face before Sure. Yeah, what else? What else marks God's presence in Scripture? What are some things we see? What's that? Healing. Healing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Even Jesus, you know, in, in his presence, he's, he's, when he's present at times, he's bringing healing, a healing presence. Yeah, okay. Yeah, what else? Radiance, beauty, yeah, light. Um, and, and, you know, we might even extend from there to say um, an, an opening of our eyes to see God's truth and beauty and who he is. And, um, yeah, yeah, you know, and then there's other things like um, how does this verse end? In his presence there is, what is it? Fullness of joy, yeah. So there's an aspect of presence that casts us before him on our faces in humility and, and total abasement in light of who he is. And then there's, there's aspects of God's presence that bring joy, fullness of joy forevermore in his presence. Also in your brokenness because you suddenly come to the realization of how sinful you are. Right. So many times we meet people, Right. Right. That realization born of you to know how sinful you are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so brokenness over how sinful you are, and then the last thing you said, followed by this realization that God has forgiven me. Which produces the joy. So that's that's what we hear Jesus saying. And he who's been forgiven much loves much. Well, everybody's been forgiven much. But some people really realize how much they've been forgiven. And that drives love from that person. It stirs up love in their hearts because they, they realize they're broken. They realize how sinful they are. Which, which only highlights the worth of the forgiveness that they've received and the mercy that they've received. Yeah, so we see these things in, in the Bible of, of how uh, God's presence shows up and, and what it does. Now, let's just think from a biblical theological perspective. So when I say that, I'm talking about the, the arc of redemptive history from the beginning into eternity future. Think about presence from that perspective for a minute. So obviously in the Garden of Eden, God was present with Adam and Eve. Pre-fall, he, he was, that, that presence was intimate. He walked with them. He communed with them. He fellowshiped with them. They, they were able to communicate with God in a, in a way we can't even fathom because we live on this side of, fall, of the fall. Obviously, as a result of the fall and a result of sin, this presence was lost and broken in a sense. 
it was distance. You know, the 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 image of the flaming swords guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden to say, now man can't just come into God's presence. He's been contaminated. He's been marked by sin. He can no longer be allowed in the presence of perfect holiness. He's been cut off and, and cast out of God's very presence. But God very quickly provided a means for his presence and relationship to be restored with his people. We see God's presence as we go through in, the, in Moses and God being present on the mountain in the burning bush. And then as he's leading his people through the wilderness, he's present in the pillar of fire and, and um, the pillar of smoke and the, the cloud of smoke and the, the fire in the smoke. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And he's, he's present there, right? Um, the, the people would hear God's voice and the mountain would shake and they would tremble with fear. God eventually would give them a tabernacle, which would provide a means where their sin can be atoned for. And his presence would be established in, in that tabernacle. People would need to come to this place to experience God's presence that would eventually give way to a temple marking the re return of God's presence in a more permanent place in a place where again to experience the fullness of God's presence you had to draw near to this temple this actual place and certain people could only go so far and special designated people could go a little bit further and the presence of God, especially in the Holy of Holies, was such that they could only enter at certain times a year. And even then, they would have a rope tied to him because if he dropped dead because of his sin, then he would need to be pulled out. There was a, a, still this purity to the presence of God that communicated, you don't just waltz in here like it's nothing, oh sinner. You need to come by way of a sacrifice. All of these images are here. But all along, historically, this is beckoning God's people and creating a longing in their hearts to say, we long to be in the presence of God again. And God is providing means, but even these means, even the temple is supposedly permanent, more permanent than the tabernacle, but even the temple was temporary. The prophets foretold a day when God would one day dwell among his people. It's coming. The day is coming when God's going to dwell among his people. The spirit would be poured out on all flesh, Joel says. The rule and reign of the Messiah would have no end. We're seeing this in our devotions with our kids, all these references in the Old Testament to, of, of a king is going to come that's going to rule and reign over God's people and in uh, his kingdom will have no end. We keep seeing each king after king fail and fall and fail and fall. And there's these glimmers of hope that a king is coming and he's going to reign and he's going to bring presence and restore God's presence with his people. So the prophets are pointing to this. Jesus comes and from the very beginning, how is he described? But as Emmanuel, God with us, right? The, the Jesus coming onto the scene, the physical expression of God's presence on the earth. And yet, and yet, Jesus says, it's better I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit can't come. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's bringing God, God himself. God, the Holy Spirit, is coming to indwell God's people. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, is this event, the pouring out of the Spirit, uh, marking the initiation of the new covenant where God comes to dwell with his people by the Spirit. And in this new redemptive work because of Jesus, he's, he's writing his law on their hearts and he's changing them from the inside out. And we see 
from Acts on that God is through the Spirit granting supernatural gifts that empower them for mission and ministry in the world. And so you may recognize that from our mission statement. We, we believe that God wants us to have communities of disciples, to see communities of disciples made and matured through Spirit-empowered mission and ministry for the glory of God. And that's exactly what the Spirit has come to do, to empower His people both for mission and ministry. And then if you've been with us through the, our study in the book of Revelation, you know, you're, you're seeing where it's all headed. It's all headed. It's all on that same trajectory that one day God will dwell among his people. Let's look at that in Revelation chapter 21, where it's all reminiscent of the garden. It's all reminiscent of the temple system, of the, the prophets speaking and all of this reminds us of this, but here we are in the end of time, future, the, the future end of eternal future. And what we read about in Revelation 21 is just astounding of how not only is the fullness of God's presence, the work and activity of God in the earth today, it's the destination of the work and activity of God today. It's where it's headed. Look at verse 3, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And what a glorious passage that is. I wish we had time to go into all the wonderful aspects of that and wiping every tear from their eyes. But this is the destination. The Spirit brings the renewed presence of God for God's people. Now, how, how does God's presence get experienced among God's people? Well, the, the key there is by the Holy Spirit, by the third person of the Trinity who manifests God's presence to us. God sends the Spirit with this exact task, actually, to indwell every believer, to minister God's imminence to God's people. You know, it's one of those healthy tensions that we've talked about before of transcendence and imminence, where possibly in word-based churches and Reformed churches, there's a really good grasp of the transcendence of God. We, we sing about it, and we recite creeds and confessions that remind us of the transcendence of God. But again, it's not either or. We need to bring in the other aspect, which is just as biblical, that God is also imminent. He is with us. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is present to comfort and heal and protect and care for. He, he wants his love to be experienced by us, not merely read about by us. The Spirit comes to, to bring the reality of the transcendent God into our actual and personal experience. None of this happens apart from the Spirit's divine intervention in our lives. So you think about, you know, I don't know if you've characterized this as a presence of God kind of thing in your own experience. So we talked about how does presence of God look in the Bible. Let's just think, how, how would it look in our own experience? Because certainly God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, but not in the same way. 
everywhere at once. He doesn't manifest himself equally everywhere at once. We saw that in the Old Testament, there were certain places where the presence of God was especially concentrated, namely the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, are there places and times and situations where the, pre the manifest presence of God is particularly present and manifested? Yes, there are. We see it in 1 Corinthians 14 when the church gathers and comes together. There's even this story there of that Paul envisions of an unbeliever coming in and having the secrets of his heart disclosed, and he falls on his face and worships God and de declares God is really among this group of people. I mean, for an unbeliever to have his heart bared open like that and to say, oh, God is here. That's not omnipresence. That's not God's just present at the football game like he is in this gathering. That, that is a manifestation of God's presence. God shows up in a real felt pronounced way. Now, we can't be too afraid to say things like felt because God relates to us as whole beings. We just sometimes don't have a good theology of emotion. And, um, and we need to uh, understand that the Bible presents an ex a certain experience of God that's not detached from truth, but rather flows directly from truth. But it's easy for us in our own fears and bad experiences or experience of charismatic abuses to kind of draw the line at the emotion and, and say, I'm going to let God and his word affect these aspects of my will and maybe my mind. Um, but I'm not going to let, I, I want to be, I'm a little bit afraid of letting my emotions get involved. And I just want to ask, do you think that's what God really wants? Does he, does he mean for his grace, which was purchased for us at the price of his own son, does he mean for that to just be intellectually appreciated? Does he mean for that to, to stir deep, profound affection? I mean, just, I heard it in, in the way you were saying it about brokenness and realizing the mercy that we've received. I mean, there's a, there's a deep affection that you feel when you think about this objective truth. And we, we want to we allow the Bible to draw the, the, the circle of, of truth and in which certain experiences can be had because they're emerging from not just, they're not floating on clouds. They're not just coming out of nowhere. They're not hanging on nothing. They're hanging on truth. And that truth has so stirred us and moved us that we're affected through and through in our entire being. I think this is what we read when we read the Psalms, is this experience of God's truth. And so a few quotes. Gordon Fee, a great actually Pentecostal theologian, I'll mention him later, says, if the church is going to be effective in our postmodern world, we need to stop paying mere lip service to the spirit and recapture Paul's perspective. The spirit as the experienced, empowering return of God's own personal presence among us, who enables us to live as a radically eschatological people in the present world, while we await the consummation. You know, eschatological people in the present world, we await consummation. What's he talking about? Revelation. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. To live as people with the end in view, 
who realize that aspects of the age to come have broken into aspects of this present evil age, not in its fullness, not in a way that guarantees that everything we ever want is ever going to happen, but it has broken in nonetheless. And that's what it means to be an eschatological people who realize that our hope is coming at the consummation. We're not holding out hope that everything's going to be perfect and prosperous and we're going to have all the money and power in the world and we're going to take over the government. And all. That, that's, that's not awaiting the consummation. But an eschatological people realizes our hope is where, what we read in Revelation 21. And so how, does, how do we live as the eschatological people awaiting the consummation? Well, we, we live that way by being people of the Spirit, people of God's presence. And then Fee goes on and says, all the rest, including fruits and gifts, that is ethical life and charismatic utterances and worship, all serve to that end. Do you realize, and Pastor really mentioned this, I mean, God's presence is a gift, is always a gift of his love to us. It, it, Robert Rayburn says this, it can neither be worked up nor prevented by the efforts of men. It is not brought about by the church, nor is it dependent upon the strength of the faith of those who come together. It is the fulfillment of his own promise. When his children assemble themselves to worship him, there is nothing more certain than his promised presence. Graham Harrison says, there can be no substitute for that manifested presence of God, which is always a biblical possibility for the people of God. When, it's not a, when it is not being experienced, they should humbly seek him for it, not neglecting their ongoing duties, nor denying their present blessings, but recognizing that there is always infinitely more with their God and Father who desires fellowship with those redeemed by the blood of his Son and regenerated by the work of his Spirit. I mean, if you think about it, the Spirit of God has been deposited inside of the believer. Again, at at the expense of Christ's own blood, we are forgiven, we're restored, we're brought into right relationship with God, and God gives his spirit to us and, and, and so unites us with the Holy Spirit that, that the word is baptized. We're immersed in the spirit. And we're going to look at this here in just a minute. Would, would God so unite his spirit with an individual and then go silent. <laughs> Don't think so. There, there's, there's close intimacy and union there. And, and the primary way the Spirit speaks to us is through His Word. As we read it, the Spirit opens our eyes and illumines our minds so that we can understand it. We come to recognize God's voice um, as we read and encounter God's voice in, in the Word. But something unique and distinct took place at this transition um, at Pentecost. So in the Old Testament, we talked about presence, but we can see in the Old Testament that the Spirit came upon people to empower them for a particular task. So you think of this. Uh, in other words, he, we read that the Spirit of God rushed upon David uh, or Saul and Samson, um, but we don't read in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God came to permanently indwell anyone. And so that marks a change as we come to the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit would empower people for particular tasks. Um, we even read for, in Saul's case that the Spirit departed from Saul. And in David's case, when David was anointed king, the Spirit came upon David and he began to prophesy. Then when David sins, we remember one of the things he prays in Psalm 51, Lord, take not 
your spirit from me. In other words, at that point in redemptive history, the, the spirit was given for a certain task and for certain ministry and things like that. But it, it's a real possibility that the spirit could be withdrawn. David is praying that that would not happen in his case. No doubt remembering what, that that is exactly what happened with Saul. And he was eyewitness of that fact. Sobered by that reality, he prays, take not your spirit from me. The spirit was transferable. We read in Numbers eleven seventeen that God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that was in Moses and put it on these other, other, other people. Um, so the spirit in the Old Testament operated in this certain kind of way. But as we come to the New Testament, we see something very different. We mentioned that Jesus said, it's better if I go away, because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. That's John 16, 7. Um, now, let me jump ahead, because I already said some of this. So in the New Testament, we see this anticipation. I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, we see this anticipation of something better that's coming that the Spirit is going to come and arrive in a certain way. Remember, we talked about how um, the divine presence was there in the garden. It was lost at the fall. Throughout the Old Testament, it's being manifested in powerful ways through Moses, Elijah. But eventually, God chose that dwelling place, and that place was a temple, and all of its rituals and procedures. Eventually, the kingdom gets divided, and the people of God are scattered. The presence is lost. Jesus comes. He says, it's better that I actually go away, because the sending of the Spirit would mark the return of the lost presence of God among his people. Not entirely lost, but lost in a sense. And so that's why Paul loves this temple imagery. You know, doesn't Paul say you are temples of the Holy Spirit? First Peter 2, 5. You're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All of that is temple language. He's all saying the temple is not a physical place where you go to experience God's presence. You are the temple. Now, wh why? why? Why Why are we pointing to all of this? Um, the Spirit's role is vital and powerful for the Christian and thus for the church. The transforming power of the Spirit in the believer is the way that God brings his presence, demonstrates his reality both to us as well as to a watching world. Gordon Fee said the secret to the early church's success was first in the gospel and the redemption of this fallen world that comes through Jesus. But their success also lay with their experienced life of the Spirit who made the work of Christ an effective reality in their lives, thus making them a radical alternative within their culture. And I think that's why what we're doing this weekend is, is so significant because doesn't God intend for his people to be this radical alternative within our culture? I think our culture's obsession with superheroes and 4K TV and all of that stuff, there, there's a longing for something bigger and more grand than we can experience. We're always longing for something bigger and greater and better and more spectacular and beyond us, we're captured by those things. We're captured by stories and legends. Why? Because God's built that into our hearts. W would, he, would he not answer that with his own supernatural presence? 
and power. And, and if he does mean to do that, who's he going to do it through? He's going to do it through his people. And so um, this, is what, this is what we see. Now, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 2, and we'll see where this all kind of begins. Now we're going to do some few minutes of just quick text work. Any questions, comments before I transition to this part? Okay. Well, if you have them as we go, feel free to ask. Now, I grew up um, exposed to like a variety of different churches and stuff. Um, I came to the Lord at a young age, and I was just hungry like crazy, and I was in church five nights a week, and my church didn't have service five nights a week. So I was going all kinds of places and just soaking up whatever I possibly could and was exposed to all, all kinds of things. And um, as, a, as a kid and as a teenager, we participated in an Assemblies of God youth camp and, uh, was, you know, like Pastor Billy talking about being police and all that. Um, I, I had a little bit of that as well as like an 11 year old and, uh, w went to the, uh, the, the head of the assemblies of God in Louisiana with the AG, uh, doctrinal statement in my hand and argued with him that tongues is not the only sign of the infilling of the Holy spirit. And they basically ran me out of their office and, uh, because what I didn't realize culturally in charismatic circles like that is you don't question authority and uh, you definitely don't confront them doctrinally. Well, I didn't realize that piece of it. Um, I came from a church where like the pastor called out everybody all the time, you know, and so I was like, well, I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just a, a variety of experiences and a, a key verse was always Acts 1.8. I mean, any, any kind of charismatic circles you would hear, um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be, they don't usually go to the witnesses part because it's all about the power part. Um, so they neglect the, the missional aspect of the pouring out of the spirit, but they always quote Acts 1.8a, <laughs> you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And of course, the, the answer to that promise is Acts 2 and the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost. Now, you remember that story? We don't need to go through the whole story. They stand up and they're, they're preaching the gospel in the languages of all the people who have gathered in this area. Some people think they're drunk. A lot of people don't know what's going on. There's just confusion. Peter stands up. and Look at Acts 2.16. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote Joel 2.28-32. Now, um, it, the Acts does tell us at Pentecost that they were all uh, baptized in the Spirit. They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak, sorry, filled with the Spirit, and they were all began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this event, um, Peter says, is the event that Joel was talking about. That's, so that's very important foundational stuff for what we're going to talk about um, tomorrow. So we see Pentecost according to Peter, is this inaugural event. It's the inauguration of a new covenant age. In other words, that, that age that was marked by the old covenant, the temple system, and everything pointing 
ahead to anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Messiah comes, he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends into heaven. Now begins the new covenant age, a, a new epoch in redemptive history. And that transition point is Pentecost. So in charismatic circles, Pentecost is, a, is, a, is, a, is paradigmatic for the entire Christian life. In other words, we should always be having Pentecost experiences. And, you know, turn to Acts 2. Well, that's what happened in Acts 2, so that's what should be happening today. And Peter kind of excludes that because he says this event marks this unique transition. Now, when we say Pentecost is transitional and inaugural, it doesn't mean it, it, it's a once-for-all done away with for all for all future even da carson in his book showing the spirit excellent book by the way says the coming of the spirit is not associated merely with the dawning of the new age but with its presence not merely with pentecost but with the entire period from pentecost to the return of jesus the messiah okay so if we do our timeline like this and uh this is the the beginning this is you know old testament times basically and then um, Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he, he ascends. And this kind of marks this transition from old covenant to new covenant age. And Pentecost, Acts 2, is right here. But we're talking about an age that has a very definitive beginning right here in Acts 2. But it, it persists into the future. So where cessationists might say that there's a there's a period of time here where it actually stops and a new period starts where certain things that we read about in Acts and elsewhere don't occur anymore. Um, what we're saying is really what it is is that this this began a period of time that persists forward. And we'll see that better tomorrow when we look at some of the other passages. So what is meant by this phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit? So I, I mentioned that I would address that. That phrase only occurs seven times in the whole New Testament. Six times it refers to this event. It's in, the, in all four of the Gospels pointing ahead, um, in Acts pointing back. So six times it's always referring to this actual Pentecost event of Acts chapter 2. The only other time that the phrase occurs is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So if you want to turn there real quick, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Pastor Billy read it a little while ago. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, the, the word order in English is a little bit different, but it's the exact same phrase in Greek, baptized in the spirit. The difference is instead of the, it's one, baptized in one spirit. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is pretty straightforward that that applies to all. Even Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So what we're getting at here is the idea that um, all believers receive the spirit at conversion. I mean, regeneration would not be possible if the spirit didn't come and regenerate the dead heart and bring it to life. So where else do we see this? Ephesians 1, 13 also affirms this reality that we all receive the spirit at conversion. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. At that time, when you heard it, when you got saved, at that time, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is received at conversion. So if you came from charismatic circles that would say, well, you may have been saved, but you still need to receive the Holy Spirit, um, that would be, in our view, a misunderstanding of, the, of what the Bible teaches. No, the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. And so what do we make of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Well, other than the fact that it all six times refers to that Acts 2 event, the, the only other time it's used in the New Testament is, is uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and there it's universalized. It's not like some people have that baptism and some don't. Everyone, you have all been baptized into one spirit, Jew, Greek, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. And so it establishes the universality of being immersed in the spirit, baptized in the spirit. Now, it doesn't stop there, though. Because what we are called to, and I think this is just an honest mistake that charismatics make, is the Bible does call us to repeated infillings of the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 5.18, where we're commanded not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? Addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks, submitting to one another. All these, all these participles following this command. What does it mean to be filled? With the Spirit? Well, it means to walk out these other things. The existence of the command to be filled implies that we could not be filled. So that should raise the question well, if you get the Spirit at conversion, how could you not? Why do you need to be filled later? Um, so there's various analogies. Uh, Grudem has used an analogy of a balloon that a balloon can be filled with air, but then it can be more filled with air. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a simple analogy, but Filling really, in this context, speaks of uh, being controlled by or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that can happen to various degrees. So we all, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it, are we always being controlled by and under the influence of the Holy Spirit in the fullest measure? No. Anytime we sin, we're not. <laughs> so Submitting to God and, and, the, and experiencing the fullness, this filling of the Spirit, is something that happens in degrees. Um, Sam Storms makes the point that we never have less of the Spirit's presence, but we can certainly have times where we experience less of His presence being manifested. Boy, that's true. Have you ever felt dry and weary and empty and dead? And we may be singing great truths, and it's just not affecting our hearts and we don't know what's going on and like man, what's wrong with me you know yeah we can all have times where we're experiencing less of this reality that the spirit is already within us and what do we do well paul tells us be filled with the spirit in other words god fill me i'm empty i need your presence i need you to open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your word today as i hear it preached God, pour out your spirit upon me. So I think, great, yeah. Create in me a pure heart and renew a right spirit within me. Yeah, those are, those are prayers of, of inviting God to really ha let the spirit have his work in our hearts. So I think that um, the, the charismatic use of baptism in the spirit is just 
you know, at best mis misapplied. Um, what we do want to be pursuing is these fillings of the Spirit. And that result in not any one particular gift, 1 Corinthians 12, but uh, a variety of gifts that would come not only as comfort to our hearts and faith building for us personally, but would come as edification for the body. And that's what we'll see tomorrow um, in chapter 14. So the existence of the command to be filled with the Spirit and, and the instruction that shows what it could look like when we're experiencing that to greater or lesser degrees all of that is to say we should desire and pursue an increasing experience of the manifestation of the Spirit's presence in our lives, and in particular, when we gather. And um, so uh, one thing I appreciate from Reformed theology and, and word-based churches is, is the understanding of sanctification as a slow, long, arduous process. It's a walk. God is changing us gradually over time. Yes, he very much is. But at the same time, um, could there be times where, where there are sudden bursts of accelerated growth in our life because God just does something in our hearts? Um, and if we have time tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to hope to read you a testimony of uh, how that happened for me once. That I can think of many times in, in over the course of my Christian life where there may be long seasons of, of, you know what, it's just faithful, spiritual disciplines, following the Lord, not much is happening. And all of a sudden, it's like God just opens heaven and something happens and, and growth is accelerated in a moment. Um, I, I call it the punctuated equilibrium of sanctification. So if you know what uh, <laughs> Darwinism and punctuated equilibrium is, um, punctuated equilibrium is like, cataclysmic events that were followed by long periods of stability. And that's how they used to explain like transitions from the ice age to the, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is not true or anything that I believe, but, um, but the Christian life is kind of like that. It is slow and gradual, but I do believe God means to occasionally surprise us with an encounter with him that, that just marks us that we're deeply affected by. And I think the right posture for us as believers is to say, Lord, I want that. I am longing for that. And I'm not going to get mad if it takes a long time to come. And I'm going to put my hand to the plow and I'm going to do my work and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to trust you in the mundane, look for you in everyday life, and pursue you in your word. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask for him to show up in powerful ways and manifest himself to me. Lay me low. Put me on my face before you because I see my sinfulness and your holiness. Comfort me in the deepest parts of my heart that nobody else has been able to get to. God, meet me there with your comforting presence. You know, that we can be praying for that and longing for that and asking God to do that. And it doesn't mean we, we neglect faithfulness and coming to church and reading your Bible and doing what's right. And we do that. But let's also not let faithfulness in those things hold us back from pursuing a greater manifestation of God's presence in our lives. And so tomorrow we'll look at how that God intends to do that through spiritual gifts. Um, all right. So we got a few minutes for questions, thoughts, reflections. What is this? How is this affecting you? What is, what is it stirring in you? I'd love to hear that.
or what questions you might have. We do have microphones, so you won't be on camera, you know, for online. So you preserve your anonymity in your question. There are no stupid questions. Bring them all, even the hard ones. I might not have answers, but I'll tell you if I don't, or I'll make something up. No, um, but I would love for you to, to interact some with this. Anyone? Well, so folks listening from home can hear it. That'll help. Thank you. Believing in the Trinity, when you receive Jesus Christ into your heart, you're also receiving the Holy Spirit. You can't separate it. I mean, they're yeah. one. Right. So uh, you can't say, okay, I've received Jesus, but Holy Spirit, you wait a while, I'll get you later. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So um, I would think of the baptism as kind of when you release the power in your life of that spirit that indwelled you when you received Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's, and so as a symbolic word, that, that, that word may be fine to use, you know, yeah. Um, and just, it seems the word filling may, may be better fit to say it, that when we're filled, the, the work of the Spirit indwelling our hearts, which we got at conversion, comes out. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and baptism is a helpful analogy because the word, the word simply means immersion. And so we're immersed in the spirit. Um, it's just as, as a tech, technically as the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's kind of used in a narrow sense in the New Testament. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a huge problem with uh, charismatics doing that. I think where, where they need to be careful, though, is when that becomes the consummate experience. And then you have everybody in the Christian life, you have the the people who haven't had it and the people who have. And now we have two-tier Christianity, which the church has done forever and found out ways to separate us from them. And the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit can become one of those things. And I think that's exactly what Paul is arguing against, which Pastor Billy did a good job of saying. Like, you want to know the real mark of spirituality? It's not who has and who doesn't have. Um, so it, there's no there, there aren't those distinctions within the body. But we can all be filled or more or less filled. Okay, I think Christian, did you? Okay. So I really appreciate what you had to say about you know the Spirit and His work and helping us to to learn and to study His Word. Um, I feel like we hear that a lot, and maybe we don't always put a lot of uh, specificity to it. So I know that maybe the Bible doesn't address it extremely specifically, but as best you understand it, like how would you describe the Spirit's role in helping us understand the Bible, apply the Bible? Etc. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, my answer to that would be to read John Piper's book on how to read the Bible supernaturally. <laughs> so he, this is a recent work of his that um, he recently wrote that. Um, he just does such an excellent job. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's part of it is passive in that the spirits inside of us helping us to understand it. But the active part would be just to consciously pray, Lord, I don't want to just read words on the page. Let this affect me. What in here do you want to meet me in my current situation and where I'm at? Um, and I think trying to find the intersection between 
my life in the real world and what the word of God is saying. And um, even some devotionals don't do a good job of that. They, they can kind of like analyze what the Bible is saying and you go, Oh, okay. Now I get that passage. I don't have any idea what it has to do with my life. Um, but to, to ask the spirit to help us know where I need to apply this. What is, what truth is this showing me about God, about myself, about the world around me that I'm forgetting? And that's all the Spirit's illuminating work to help us see that. So I think just praying those things and asking God to help us see that would be a way that that happens. Is that is that what you're asking? Yeah. What what thoughts do you have on that? How do you well, think of that? So, you know, you'll, you'll hear people say, and, and I'm not taking a stance on it, but you'll hear people say, like, you know, they may not need to study something because the Holy Spirit will just reveal the meaning to them. Okay. Or, you know, so you've got that end to people who think, well, you know, he's not going to reveal much, but he's going to help us love it and apply it. And so just even as we're studying our Bible, uh, we hear about illumination. What does that maybe practically look like? And, you know, as far as actually understanding what the scripture is saying to us and the Holy Spirit's role in that. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the things I said, but you bring up the two um, ends of that spectrum, which is what I heard in the charismatic circles was, um, but first, John, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you don't need anyone to teach you, you know. And uh, in other words, the Spirit's just going to subjectively lead you and show you everything. And on the other hand, um, we have commands to pastors to study, to show yourself approved and to labor in the text for the, for the Lord. Um, so, you know, so on that side, we can approach it entirely humanly and, and neglect the, the earnest prayer that God would speak to me through his word and convict me and change me and warm my heart towards people and all the things that I need, you know, that we're not actually doing that. We're just an analyzing it too academically. And that, so that would be one ditch to fall in. And the other would be, um, you know, like, I'm just going to read one verse and, you know, or just pop my Bible open and the spirit's just going to lead me. And, and neglecting human responsibility in that. Yeah. That's good, Delane. Um, one thing that perked my ears whenever you were talking, Pastor Billy, was the idea that in uh, 1 Corinthians talks about salvation being a gift and then the gifts of the Spirit being like that. And Please tell me if I'm making a category mistake or something, but I'm kind of wrestling with that in the idea of how does that apply with somebody who's not discerning his spiritual gift? How does that apply? Because like salvation, it's uh, taking a dead sinner and transforming him, giving him a new heart. How does that apply to the gifts? If it's a if you can't boast, if you how does that apply if it, if you dis, if you have to discern them, yeah, and then you can't boast about it in the same way of salvation? Kind of flesh that out, I guess. Yeah, it's a good, great question and a humble question. So appreciate you asking that. Um, so and we'll look into this tomorrow, but um, I don't think the gifts in the New Testament are are an exhaustive list. So it's not like there are these 12 or there are these 14 or over here. Well, there's these nine, you know, um, so there's not I don't think there's a specific list. 
Um, and, and really, we're not called to say, identify your gift. So this was a thing like back in the 90s and 2000s, like how to figure out what your gift is. I, I don't know that that's really in keeping with Paul's heart about, you know, like you mentioned, that there's no boasting. It's not. I think that the guiding light in the whole thing is pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. As, and then he says, especially that you may prophesy. In other words, especially those that would bless the broader church when they gather. Um, so I don't see a command to say you need to figure out which gift you have. Um, so I think you could be released from like trying to identify that. And that may be the way the, the Lord operates is that he's he's granting these gifts and using people in them as they avail themselves openly to say, God, use me in whatever gifts you would have for me. And then part of that is just coming into an understanding of what are some of the things that the Bible talks about and describes as gifts. So if we have an ignorance of that, then it may be harder to even know what we're asking for. Um, but Paul goes at length to describe, for instance, prophecy. So we can at least know a whole lot about that one. He doesn't go as much into some of the others. But um, the, the fact that there's not an unpacking of each gift, I think, implies that we don't have to come away with, like, I checked the, on the new member's card, which gift do you have? Oh, word of, no, word of knowledge. I think it's that, God, I want to love people, and how, how would you use me to build up and edify and encourage others? That's First Corinthians 14. And we come with an open heart and open hands asking God to use us, and we step forward in faith trusting that he's going to use us. And then maybe after the fact, we step back and go, oh, that was word of knowledge. Oh, that was a word of prophecy. Um, in other words, we're not saying, well, I've got the gift of prophecy. And so I, I finally figured that piece out. I think that's how God guards us from, uh, from pride, um, which is, you know, in the second session tomorrow, we'll get into things like, I think it's some of the errors with like, healing ministries, like so-and-so has the gift of healing. And, you know, we're, we're, we're identifying some particular one. So is that kind of what you're asking? Does that address it? Yeah, I guess my, my thought was more of like the distinction between salvation being a gift and then prophecy being a gift. Like you had to step out and try out if you had to get prophecy. Yeah. And that's way different than you don't necessarily – have to do anything to be gotcha saved. yeah I, I see yeah 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 so one being in the category of sanctification and the synergistic work of we cooperate with the spirit and we work as the spirit works in us whereas salvation is monergistic and god just does it supernaturally and um and changes our hearts so it's it's not an equivalent gift yeah um salvation is not considered a, a spiritual gift in the sense of these are the ways the spirit manifests himself when you gather. Um, it's the principal gift. It's the main gift. And out of that flows some of these others as well. So Pastor Billy. Yeah, and we'll wrap up with your That is so answer. good. And then we can maybe tag in a little bit with what Patty was saying. So in Alan's chart, the, you know, the people that believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience after salvation. Um, so that you're, you're saved, but then what you really need to have God's power is a secondary experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we wouldn't believe that. We believe the powerful experience was your salvation. Right. And then we hold a high view of sanctification. So, so much of sanctification is learning 
who Christ is, learning who the Spirit is. And I think that's where the role of being constantly filled with the Spirit keeps coming in. Because, because what would happen is to, to, you know, to my charismatic friend who would say, well, yeah, but so you, but when are you going to experience the power? <laughs> and I would say, well, I'm so thankful I already did uh, when I was saved. But I also believe that as I grow in sanctification, there's, gonna, there's just going to by default be now as I'm, I'm a Christian now and I'm seeking Jesus, I'm studying the word, there's going to be a chronological first experience. Mm-hmm. That's it's it's not, it's just the just because there's an ongoing feelings of the spirit. So there's going to be a chronological first experience where I'm I'm like you were saying, wow, the Lord just, you know, you you gave somebody a word and you're, all you're doing is trying to be faithful to Scripture and they were on your heart and and you gave them this Scripture and they go oh, and they start crying and they're, how did you know I didn't and you're going I don't know uh, you know well. Well, what's happening is there's now there's this this I love the word synergistic. As you're growing in your in Christ likeness, there's also a growth in God using you in spiritual gifts. So, so it, it is distinct from salvation, but not separated from it. It's mm-hmm. a it's a fruit of salvation in terms of the Spirit, you know, working in you in an ongoing way. So chronologically, first experience that we would we would hope. That we would, that we continue to seek the Lord, God will continue to move by the Spirit using gifts in the ongoing work of in our lives, our gathering of our church. You know, mm-hmm. but saying, that, that's where I think sanctification gets rarely mentioned a lot of times in regard to the gifts of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's it's a significant element in terms of our growing in maturity. Well, wouldn't there be an associated in not limiting God that that He'll only He'll only operate in spiritual gifts for the mature. That's not what we're saying, but it's not unrelated because you you you're knowing your Father, you're knowing you knowing God. You're you're understanding better the work of the Spirit as you as you're growing in the Lord and better able to discern. You know, so I think a lot of it is knowing what the gifts are. You know, acknowledging God. I believe all these are for today, and and here I am, you know, send me, use me. Uh, I'll, I won't, I'll be faithful to anything that you, you give me to give to others. You know, something for that. That's, that's kind good. Of a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Really good question. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Well, let's close in prayer and uh, tomorrow we'll pick up looking more closely at the gift of prophecy. So um, that I'll be using the first four pages in your resource packet. So if you wanted to review that tonight, that, that would be good. Um, we'll go through that. I'm not, we're not using anything else in the packet this weekend. That's just, you know, reading for you um, to check it out later. But we will do prophecy uh, at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And um, anybody that wants to learn how to speak in tongues, come at 730. <laughs> we'll have a class on that. No. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time and these folks that are uh, coming. And just by their being here, I think, is an expression of 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And these folks are doing that. And I thank you for them. Thank you for the gift that they are to our church. And um, I pray we would grow as a church in these things, Lord, Uh, that we would not keep you out of certain aspects of our hearts or our church life, but that we would embrace all that you have for us in scripture. 
and help us to see what that is so that we can embrace it and walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll have some donuts and some collagen stuff in the morning.